Good morning. Oh, it's good to be here today. Good to see you guys. I brought my buddy Noah Tolbert, and uh, I want to ask Noah a few questions about winter camp, student ministries, two weekends ago. Uh, we joined in with over 400 middle school and high school students down in the Young Life uh, camp in Frontier Ranch in uh, Buena Vista, and so we had an awesome time. And so, uh, Noah, just speak right into that, and and uh, just, first of all, tell us what grade you're in, what school you go to, so people can get to know you a little bit. Try that again. I, that was my bad. I'm in eighth grade, and I go to DSSC GVR. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. So uh, you went to winter camp. What was one of the fun highlights for you? Just something that you just had a blast doing at winter I think camp. Something I had a blast on was the dodgeball tournament because we did better than we did last winter camp. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what place did your team take? I think like fifth. Fifth out of, what, like 20 or 30 teams? I mean, there was a lot of teams playing, a lot of kids playing dodgeball. So that was just tons of fun. And it was a double elimination, so you guys went down hard. Yeah, you played a bunch of games. So that's awesome. Very cool, very cool. So tell me about what was the spiritual highlight for you at winter camp. I think the worship, because I feel like God was speaking to me the most during that time. Absolutely. They had a band that uh, led us in worship. And they uh, brought in a, a Christian rap artist from Detroit, and he sang along with the band, and uh, he led us in worship as well. So was there a song that uh, really stuck out, or was it all of the songs, or any any moment in the time of worship that really ministered and spoke to you? I think one song was um, Love, Your Love Never Fails. Mm, good. Yeah, Absolutely. And so uh, what else would you want to share about winter camp and, and maybe what God was teaching you or speaking to you about? I think God was teaching me that I need to spend more time with him and less things, less time doing other things. Mm. Can you tell us about the dare they gave that kind of related to spending time with God? Spend 30 days training them. They gave us a book saying, like, you have to do something a day. Yeah. It was a devotional book called The Dare, and there was a devotional for each of 30 days, and that was the challenge. And so uh, do you want to express your appreciation to Noah for sharing? Thank you so much. Go ahead and give that mic to the uh, guys in the sound booth. Would you do that? All right. Awesome. We had a great time at winter camp, and, and I just want to thank you for your support of student ministries. And, and uh, today I have the opportunity to... Uh, teach on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the things uh, that we can learn from him. And we're in this series, Journey to the Cross. Week one, we talked about the temptation of Christ, how he, how he was tempted, but he did not sin. He did not give in to that temptation. Week two, it was uh, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And week three was the transfiguration of Jesus on the top of the Mount of Olives. And week four, last week, was Jesus cleansing the temple. And so in our story, we're leading up to Jesus' his betrayal, Jesus' his, his, uh, his um, <clears throat> crucifixion, his torturing leading up to his death. 
We're leading up to his resurrection, which we're going to be celebrating on Easter in one week. And so the night before Jesus was crucified and tortured, we read about Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Let's pray. Father, give us an insight into this passage. Help us to understand what Jesus went through, what he did for us, leading up to the cross and to the resurrection. Open our minds, open our hearts to hear what you want us to hear. Speak to us in the area of our life that you want to speak to us. We give you permission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a famous artist from 1890 named Henrik Hoffman who's painted this picture of Christ in Gethsemane. It's probably the most famous picture of Jesus. It's depicting what I just read, how Jesus slips away from his disciples and he bows down. And he prays this prayer three times. We have the Mount of Olives, the Transfiguration. Gary spoke on that a couple of weeks ago. At the base of the Mount of Olives is the garden called Gethsemane. It's filled with olive trees. The word uh, Gethsemane means olive press. It's very likely that there was an olive press there nearby for them to take the olives from the tree and to press them into olive oil. 
There was some type of system. In, in this garden at the base of the mountain, it was a peaceful place. And it was a place where Jesus and his disciples went often to get away from the crowds and to pray. And so the disciples were not surprised when Jesus finished the Last Supper and said to his disciples, let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go and slip away. They had done that many times before. But this time, it would be the last time that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was likely that only 11 disciples went with Jesus as Judas likely slipped away from that last supper to turn Jesus in to the authorities. And in verse 46, uh, verse 45 and verse 46 of our passage, Jesus even says, the time has come, the Son of Man betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. He's referencing Judas. And so eight disciples... Jesus asked to stop in one location, but he told Peter, James, and John, come with me a little further. And so they walked a little further into the garden, and Jesus asked those three disciples that he was closest to, to wait here and to pray with him. And Jesus slipped away, and he prayed his famous prayer, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And, and this cup of suffering is symbolizing the cup of suffering on the cross and the, suff of, of cu uh, the cup of suffering in death that Jesus knew was coming the, the next day. And so humanly, Jesus was saying, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet, I want your will to be done not mine. So there's four things that we learn from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're in your notes. The first thing that we learn is that Jesus was all God, and Jesus was all man. In this passage, we see very vividly the humanness of Jesus, as well as his divinity. And our passage, it speaks very directly about how Jesus was anguished and distressed. He was experiencing sorrow, overwhelming sorrow and agony. Maybe more than any other passage of Scripture, we see the struggle of Jesus and the humanness of Jesus. And this prayer that Jesus prayed is, is in all four Gospels. But in the book of Luke, Luke he was a doctor, and so he would notice medical things. And Luke is the only one to record how Jesus, in this time of anguish, was sweating like drops of blood. And I, I've always been interested in that picture and in that phrase. There is a medical condition, not sure if I'm going to say it right, Hematidrosis. 
It's a rare but very real medical condition where one's sweat will contain blood. The sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels, and these vessels can constrict and dilate to the point of rupture where the blood will then effuse into the sweat glands. And its cause is extreme anguish. So some people would say that Jesus literally was sweating drops of blood. Others would say, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe it's symbolic or figurative. Maybe the, the, the drops of sweat looked like blood or they were large like blood. But the bottom line in this passage is that Jesus was in serious agony. He was showing all his humanness right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was all man, and he was all God. He was not half man and half God. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And now the math doesn't add up. It's the mystery of of God. It's the mystery of the divinity. It's the mystery of the Trinity. I believe Jesus was more than a good teacher, more than a good storyteller, and more than a good guy. He's the Son of God. He's all man. He's all God. He's 100% man, and he's 100% God. He was born from the virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life in 1 Peter 2.22. It says he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. Jesus is listed as recording at least 37 miracles in the Bible, like healing and feeding and raising people from the dead. And so we experience this humanness of Jesus, and we experience this divinity, this God of Jesus. And in Colossians 2.9, it says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. Why is that important for us to know? I don't know about you, but when I think of Jesus experiencing temptation, yet not sinning, experiencing suffering and pain and heartache and sorrow. Now, all of a sudden, when I'm experiencing suffering or pain or sorrow, now I am feeling like Jesus understands me more than I ever realized. Because he has gone through some amazingly difficult things as a human on earth. And I can trust him with my problem. What are you going through today that you need Jesus to understand? Because he does. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was all man. He was experiencing agony and distress. And he can understand where you're at in your life and what you're going through. Jesus was all man and he was all God. The second thing we learn from this passage of Scripture, the way to spiritual victory is saturated with prayer. The way to spiritual victory is saturated with prayer. Jesus and his disciples, they were regulars at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
to where he and his disciples would slip away from the crowds and they'd spend time in prayer. And in our busy world, with our busy lives, it's easy to let our time in prayer and God's Word slide. It's easy to book ourselves so full that when we fall into bed at night exhausted and we realize we've spent hardly a moment praying or reading God's Word that day, and then when we struggle in our spiritual lives, we wonder why. And when we wonder why God seems to have abandoned us, and we, we sometimes blame God... We need to be reminded today that spiritual victory is saturated in prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Sometimes prayer is difficult. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes my mind gets distracted. And so there's times when I have to pray out loud. And when I pray out loud, and all of a sudden I realize I've stopped talking, and my mind is thinking about something way over here, I go, oh, I was praying just a second ago. And I come back to my prayer and I speak out loud. Because when I speak out loud, now I'm focused. Maybe you need to be like Jesus and find a place where you can slip away. That's kind of your place where you can pray. It's kind of your prayer closet, so to speak. It's your prayer place. It's your holy spot. Maybe you, you can pray anywhere, you can pray at any time. But we need to saturate our spiritual lives with prayer. And this Philippians 4, 6, it's really a simple guide for us, a simple plan for us in prayer. Instead of worrying, just pray about it. Tell God what you need. And thank Him for all He's done. You know, we can't be too honest with God. (laughs) We can talk to Him straight. We can tell Him like it is. We can tell Him what we're thinking, because He already knows. We can tell Him what we're feeling, because He already knows. We can tell Him what we're going through, because He already knows. And the way to spiritual victory is saturated with prayer. Third thing we learn from Jesus in the garden, there's a spiritual battle going on for our souls. Jesus asked his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to stay here and keep watch. In his darkest hour, filled with anguish and distress, his disciples could not stay awake. And this is where that phrase became famous. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. You know, I I often think about it when I'm listening to messages or when I'm thinking about students listening to my teaching on Wednesday. I think of this phrase, the spirit is willing. I want to learn. I want to hear and receive God's word. I want to grow. But sometimes 
the body's weak. If I didn't get enough sleep, or if I'm tired and if I'm struggling, or if the message is going on and on and on. I think about the attention span of my audience today. I think about the attention span of, of my audience on Wednesday nights. You know, the spirit is willing, but the body's weak. Some of you maybe worked late last night, or you had family obligations, or maybe you went to a party and you stayed a little longer, or something like that, and you're like, whew, I want to listen to Bill. I want to learn. I want to grow. But I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. Maybe you work 60 or 70 or 80 hours this week. Maybe you work a part-time job on top of your full-time job. Or maybe you have kids that you're chasing all around, and it just seems like it never stops. And you now are seated. And it seems like maybe you haven't had much rest. And this is really comfortable. Aren't these chairs comfortable? Yeah. That's not the reason I picked coming to this church. But it's a huge benefit. That little, those knobs that fit together, that give a little extra space. I appreciate that as a big guy. I always hate those old metal folding chairs, you know, that are like right next to each other and they're wedged together and there's one here and one and I'm supposed to sit there like, it's kind of like on the airplane, you know, it's like a stranger sitting next to you and you're, I'm like, oh man, they all, I always get stuck next to a big guy and I'm like, I'm a big guy. What about that little skinny girl that just walked by? Why isn't she sitting there? I need that elbow spell. Oh. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. There's a spiritual battle going on for our souls. We're not just a part of a club, a nice organization at Stapleton Fellowship Church. We're not just a part of a nice group being a part of the kingdom of God. We're in God's family, and there is an enemy, and there is a battle, and there is a struggle. And the question I have for us today is, is have we fallen asleep spiritually? Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Whew. We kind of forget that, don't we? Sometimes we just kind of think, oh, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to love Jesus. And I want to live for Jesus and see my friends at church. And Oh, I get free coffee at the cafe. wonder what snacks they have. There's a spiritual battle. There is a fight between good and evil, between God and Satan. And the spiritual battle is not just out there. The spiritual battle is battling for each of us and for our souls. And the 
The spiritual battle is battling for our families. And the spiritual battle is battling for our church. And the leaders of our church. There's a spiritual battle that we are fighting. The Bible is very clear. And we need to wake up. We need to wake up. And say, God, I need you more now than ever. And I'm not here to try to scare us or manipulate us. My goal is simply to remind us that there is a battle for our souls. There is a battle for the soul of your children and your teenager. There is a fight for them. It's not just a nice thing that they should come to youth group and maybe learn about Jesus once a month. No. There's a battle for their soul. And that's why that's a priority, teaching your children in the home as well as bringing them to church and teaching your students in the home as well as bringing them to youth group and and letting them go to things like winter camp. There's a battle for our souls. And the enemy will do everything he can to try to get us to fall asleep. I love sports. We can win in sports. We can win when it comes to sports. I wanted to wear my Super Bowl 50 Broncos championship Super Bowl long sleeve, beautiful dark gray t-shirt that my wife bought me. I wanted to wear it today. Guess what? I got vetoed. She's like, no, Bill, maybe Wednesday night at youth group. Okay, so I'll wear it Wednesday. We can win at sports. We can have success in our careers. We can accumulate wealth and possessions, yet fail in our spiritual lives because we've become complacent and have forgotten about our walk with the Lord, or we just go through the motions. There is a spiritual battle for our souls, and we learn that from Jesus. And Jesus began this process, began this journey to the road, on the journey to the cross. And it went through the Garden of Gethsemane. And it led to his his torture, his beating, and his, his death and resurrection. Why? So that you and I could have victory in our spiritual lives. The fourth thing we learn from Jesus, surrender to God's will is key. Surrender to God's will is key. Jesus says, not my will be done, but yours. In Matthew 26, verse 39, he pray, my father, he prayed this prayer three times. My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In the midst of his agony and distress, Jesus prayed that prayer three times. He prayed in the garden long enough for his disciples to fall asleep three times. So this was not just a quick little short prayer This was a complete surrender where he laid on that rock. 
In that picture, he looks so angelic and so godly. But I have a feeling that Jesus was more human looking than that. I have a feeling that he laid on that rock or laid on that ground. And he cried. And he said, God, humanly, I don't want to die. Humanly, I don't want to be tortured and go to the cross and, and die this criminal's death. But... Not my will, your will be done. In 1 John 2.17, says, And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. God's way may not always be the easy way, but it's always the best way. It's always the best way. Have you prayed in your life a prayer similar to this? Have you prayed and said, God, humanly I'm struggling with these things, but not what I want, what you want. That area of your life that maybe you're thinking about now that you're kind of dealing with or struggling or you're trying to find God's will, have you surrendered that thing to God, that area to God, and said, not what I want, but what you want. Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, he says God wants you to understand his will, his purpose, and his plan for your life. And, and he gives us three things answering the question, what is God's will? First, he says, God's will is not a feeling. God's will is not a feeling. Some of you are looking for a feeling or a supernatural sign, and you want God to pull your heartstrings so you'll know exactly what to do. The problem is that feelings are unreliable, and they'll often guide you the wrong way. Feelings can come from fatigue, hormones, an event that you just experienced. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful. Even your heart plays tricks on you. Even the devil can create a feeling. Don't wait for a feeling when you're trying to figure out God's plan for your life. The second thing that he says is God's will. God's will is not a formula. And in our culture, we want everything to be easy. We want things to follow a simple formula so it will instantly change our lives. We want a step-by-step guide. But there's a problem with this approach. There's no room for mistakes. If God's will is a recipe, what happens if you leave out one ingredient? If you leave baking soda out of a recipe, you've got the difference between a birthday cake and a pancake. What if you have 52 steps to knowing God's will and you leave out number 37? God's will is not a closed system. It is dynamic. It's not always an issue of choosing A or B. In fact, many times you can choose from A to Z, and any one of them will be okay. It's your choice. Why would God give you a brain and not expect you to use it? He lets you make choices, and he gives you second chances. If God's will is not a formula or a feeling, what is it? Pastor Rick says it's a relationship. God's will is a relationship. There's very little in the Bible about the technique of knowing God's will. 
But there are thousands and thousands of verses that talk about developing a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's will is a relationship. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Have you come to the place in your life where you you stop fighting and you say, I need Christ in my life? You invite him into your heart and life. You ask him to forgive you of your sins. And and you cross that line of faith. If not, maybe he's knocking on your heart today to open up that door and, and invite him in. If you've begun that relationship with Christ and you're on that spiritual journey, maybe today is your you're searching or seeking for God's will in your life, maybe today he's just saying, surrender. Lay it out before me. Life will be a lot easier if we quit fighting with God and fighting to do our own thing and we just surrender to his will. Is there something today that you need to surrender to him?